0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three
1: orders while supplies last.
0: Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: It is 7.07 in the Twin Cities. Um, we were going to try and reach a um, uh, Dr. Paul Orchard from the University of Minnesota uh, to talk about rare diseases. And uh, there was a uh, gathering for 12, uh, 12, uh, the 12th Rare Disease Day recently. Uh, at the Capitol, and we wanted to talk about some of the strategies involved with rare diseases, what are the options for folks we are having a little trouble connecting, though. I do want to let you know that in our next half hour, we will visit uh, with uh, two experts uh, on some of the difficulties that church leaders are having in two different faces on a number of fronts. First, uh, Professor Charles Reed from the University of St. Thomas will weigh in on the yet latest chapter in the saga of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. This this doesn't seem to end, and it seems as though every time you peel back the onion, the layers of the onion, there there's something else ugly inside, and it goes now to the core, and you have a top cardinal who's been prosecuted. And Dr. Charles Reed has, has you know, Followed this for a long, long time, but it's extremely disturbing and, and troubling. I know that the Pope has uh, called in all the archbishops and, and bishops to, to Rome to talk about it to try and, and you know make some kind of amends. But it, it makes you wonder if if there is really a solution here, or if that that onion or that apple is is perhaps too rotten. If, if there needs to be some structural change in the Catholic Church. I mean, personally, I think that 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 might be. The way people may have to go, and then we also will have a pastor uh, from the United Methodist Church. And I think when people think of denominations, uh, many people think of Methodists as being more progressive than perhaps, uh, you know, Catholics. And Methodists uh, voted down a uh, and have have a ban still on same sex marriage and gay clergy. And so that is something that was upheld in a move that could break up the denomination. So we're going to, that's in our next half hour. Right now, though, we do have Dr. Paul Orchard from the University of Minnesota. Dr. Orchard, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. All right. Well, let me ask you, uh, you are somebody who, who has worked in the field of, of rare diseases. What? And one in 10 people have a rare disease in Minnesota, half of whom are children is this something that that's always been the case, or is there is it this simply a function of the fact that that the diagnosis diagnosis criteria and and the skill of people such as yourself has improved the tools you have at your disposal have improved and so you're able to understand that what is happening to patient a is is not what's happening to patient b it's actually something completely different
2: well, I think uh, for a good many of these diseases uh, uh, you know the diseases themselves have uh, likely not changed in terms of the, uh, you know, how often these um, are there. For instance, I, in many of the diseases, especially those in, in childhood, are inherited. Uh, I think we're probably doing a better job now at, at making the diagnosis and hopefully making those diagnoses earlier. But I think a lot of these diseases have been uh, prevalent, um, you know, forever, but uh, hopefully we're doing a better job in identifying them.
1: In terms of um, one of the things, one in 10, I mean, that that sounds just so startling. And obviously people here, especially in the Twin Cities, have access to, to the University of Minnesota, to some of these wonderful hospitals, folks down in Rochester have the Mayo. Is there the same help or are there pathways for those who are listening to us now who live in more isolated or more rural areas to get to the places where you have the experts such as
2: yourself? Well, I think one of the first issues is a diagnosis, uh, because many of these diseases present uh, in ways that um, are not clear from the beginning that it actually is a rare disease. I think in many circumstances, an initial provider, a physician, or a physician assistant, or whoever is seeing the patient uh, has to uh, understand, for instance, if uh, the a diagnosis is um, um uh well if the patient has a uh, symptoms that are uh, uh standard disease or a relatively prevalent disease or whether they're uh uh from a, a rare disease so i think essentially <clears throat> um many of the providers have to decide you know is this uh something that i've seen before but is presenting in a different way or is this actually something that is totally uh, different, and and something that I may need to um, have additional help in making diagnosis for. Right,
1: and is this something? And obviously, this spans you know all kinds of diseases. I mean, how is there are are there new diseases that are being diagnosed on a regular basis, or or are there you know in the past you know two decades have there been a number of d- diseases or or you know spin offs of diseases, if that's the correct word, which it probably isn't, that have been diagnosed uh, or has there always been sort of a set number of diseases that, that that physicians have known about for decades and decades?
2: well, I think we've done a a better job, especially with the availability of more specific testing, especially the genetic testing, we can better tease those things apart, so for instance, there may be a set of diseases that look the same, but actually. When you get into the genetics, uh, they, they actually are totally different diseases. So I think um, the genetic testing has really come uh, dramatically, uh, uh, you know, has been dramatically uh, ability or the ability for us to, um, to diagnose these things has been uh, incredibly helpful. So the, um, the, many of these diseases now we can pinpoint the molecular basis of, and as we better understand them, that will help us uh, make that, make the, um, not only the diagnosis, but help us treat these patients earlier.
1: All right. Uh, we're chatting with Dr. Paul Orchard. Um, he's a doctor with the University of Minnesota. We're talking about rare diseases. What is being done at the U to diagnose and treat rare diseases? I mean, do you have like a team of folks when something comes in that's... that's- not, not obvious, work on it. I mean, how do, how do you do the diagnosis, and, and what's being done uh, in terms of um, treating these diseases?
2: Well, so in terms of diagnosis, um, so, you know, at the University of Minnesota, we have uh, uh, an interest in these rare diseases. Our genetics groups are, are uh, focused on being able to make this diagnosis. Some of these diseases are now uh, identified at at birth through newborn screening, the Mayo Clinic as as uh, uh, great doctors in terms of diagnostics, for instance, as well. So, um, the like I say, part of the the uh, ability to make that diagnosis <clears throat> is uh, being aware that these diseases exist. And if a provider is presented with a, a patient that um, seems to be seems to have an unusual constellation of symptoms, or uh, abnormalities in X-rays or in lab tests or whatever, that seems out of the ordinary. Uh, getting them to someone who can help make those dis- or make that diagnosis is, is really uh, key.
1: It is, is one and how about, how about the kinds of tools at your disposal? Obviously, the University of Minnesota, one of the top medical facilities in the country, if not the world, but how is that changing?
2: Well, so uh, in terms of the rare diseases, as as you mentioned, um, collectively um, there's uh, approximately seven thousand rare diseases. So for each individual disease, it, it's by definition rare, but collectively uh, there are many people that have these rare disorders. So trying to establish a a, a medical home for rare diseases has really been kind of a challenge. So. Uh, We just had discussions over this last week with um, the National Organization of Rare Disorders, which is is based in Washington, about uh, how Centers of Excellence, for instance, might be established. Um, And even though you can't be experts in all these diseases, having uh, a culture that helps these families um, in terms of diagnosis, but also in terms of finding who's interested in these diseases, who's treating them, what kind of... uh, clinical trials for instance or new uh, therapies may be available to them uh, that that type of infrastructure and ability to help the patients is really what we're we're driving at
1: all right we're chatting with Dr. Paul Orchard um, he is the uh, medical director of the inherited metabolic and storage disease bone marrow transplantation program uh, Dr. Orcher, we have to take a, a break, but I'd like to, when we come back, ask you about your spe- specific area of expertise, because you, you're working on some pioneering issues here to try and help people, uh, and you are a professor uh, in the Division of Pediatric Blood and Marrow Transplantation, obviously transplants, something that, that so many people are looking at, and it appears that the innovations in so many of these diseases are are, are coming from that kind of a, a medical procedure. So Keep it right here. More with Doctor Orchard after this on News Radio eight three zero WCCO. Esme Murphy with you until nine o'clock. Coming up in our next half hour, we're going to talk with two experts about problems uh, in both the Catholic and also Methodist Church controversies that have uh, that are threatening to break uh, both those denominations and, and encourage people to perhaps leave the church or split off. Uh, Anyway, that's coming up in our next half hour. Right now, though, Dr. Paul Orchard is with us. He is a professor in the Division of Pediatric Blood and Marrow Transplantation at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about rare diseases, uh, Professor. This is your area of expertise. Tell us about exactly what what disease this this spectrum is, and and how you are focusing on some new and innovative ways to treat it.
3: Uh,
2: sure. So, so my background is in pediatrics and. Uh, in my prior training, we trained in uh, hematology, oncology, so the care of kids that have cancer. And bone marrow transplantation is is part of that. So globally, most of the kids that we treat with bone marrow transplantation uh, are, are those that have leukemias and other malignant disorders. But, but transplantation has also been useful for uh, non-malignant diseases like sickle cell and, and immune deficiencies and, and whatnot, the diseases that I'm especially interested in, I see uh, primarily, are uh, patients that have inherited disorders that uh, can be treated by cell and um, and marrow transplant. So uh, those are inherited metabolic types of diseases, where there's enzyme deficiencies, for instance. Um, some of the neurologic disorders that are inherited are responsive to transplant. And so those are the patients that we primarily see in 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 my clinic and and we take care of as part of our group
1: okay and, and are most of those inherited diseases and are are you nobody wants to have a rare disease, but in some ways are is there are there more options for those who may have an inherited disease because of the options for transplants with family members and what about those who just have something that's not inherited
2: well so So, again, a lot of the transplants that we do are for patients that that have other disorders, uh, especially uh, resistant leukemias, for instance, and those types of things. But for the metabolic disorders, so, again, these are rare disorders that are, for instance, an enzyme deficiency. If we can do a blood and marrow transplant and put somebody else's cells, establish those in the patient so that they have the blood cells from someone else. Those cells serve as a source of enzyme potentially for the, for the life of the patient. So over time, and University of Minnesota has been a pioneer in this and uh, started a bit before my time. It's going back 35 years or so uh, that we've been treating patients who have those kinds of diseases. Transplant has gotten uh, much more sophisticated. Uh, It's, it's still a risky procedure, a difficult procedure, but it's, it's uh, made great improvements and strides in uh, the safety associated with it. But uh, the things that are really exciting coming down the pike are the opportunities to potentially interface uh, transplantation with gene therapy or potentially do gene therapy on its own. So that may give us the opportunity to, to use, for instance, the patient's own cells and to engineer them to replace the enzyme that's missing, for instance, and uh, make that more... Uh, well, increase the safety and potentially make it more efficacious as
3: well.
1: So you can use potentially, even though the patient is not well and has a rare and very serious disease, there's the potential to use their own cells to help them?
2: Yes. So historically, uh, the the concept was uh, there's an enzyme that's deficient, for instance, in the, in the entire body, every cell is deficient in this enzyme, but if you can... Uh, provide blood cells from someone else that are making enzyme that those cells can circulate through the body and serve as a source of continuous enzyme that can treat the rest of the body. So we're only replacing the blood cells, but uh, it's a, a systemic treatment that uh, that we accomplish with transplant. But there's only so much enzyme you can deliver doing that, for instance. And so now, for instance, we can use the patient's own blood stem cells. Even, uh, even if they're sick. Even if they're sick, yeah. I mean, certainly it's. Is that sort of counter?
1: Uh, for those of us who are not in the medical profession, that sort of almost seems counterintuitive.
2: Well, it's uh, identifying the patients early gives us a better chance to do this because, as, you, as you're alluding to, the sicker the patients are and the further the disease has progressed, the harder it is to treat them. But uh, essentially, there are procedures now where we can re- remove the patient's own blood stem cells. There's viruses and other uh, methodology to take the gene that's missing and actually insert it into the cells, and then we give the patient's own corrected cells back, as opposed to using someone else's cells. So a lot of this, and and that's
1: got to be a lot easier to do that because you've got the patient right there.
2: Well, well, exactly, and and there's a lot less complications in using somebody's own cells. Because there's two immune systems to deal with if you're doing a transplant using someone else's cells, because you can reject the new cells coming in, like you can reject a kidney transplant or a liver transplant, for instance. And the immune cells from someone else can react to the body of the person who's been transplanted, which is a a complication that we see on an ongoing basis. So there's a lot more risk of doing transplant with somebody else's cells than if you uh, can you know, develop one of these procedures to use the patient's own cells. So that's really um, something that's taking off now, and we have these opportunities to do these. Most of these are are still experimental, but uh, this is really going to change the field. And
1: and if if that, you know, if you can have success there, I mean, doesn't that open the possibilities for perhaps using one's own cells in cases of, you know, perhaps paralysis or, you know, all, all these other um, possible uh,
2: ailments. Yeah, so I absolutely, and I, I think... Because as that, that's, ex, sus- that's exciting stuff. Oh, abs- yeah, it, it really is. And as we develop the procedures to do this and they become more efficient, and, and some of our colleagues here at the at the University of Minnesota are uh, leading the field in developing these types of procedures, uh, some of the viral vectors, for instance, but some of the non-viral approaches as well, and gene editing, for instance, those things are, are really going to revolutionize the field. And uh, we're kind of right in the middle of of trying to do this. So um, it's a, as someone who is seeing these patients and um, understanding our, the limitations of our current therapy, being able to open the door to do some of these things is, is really exciting and uh, I, I think going to help us provide better outcome for the patients down the road.
1: We're chatting with Dr. Paul Orchard from the University of Minnesota about uh, rare diseases, his work uh, with blood and, and marrow transplantation. Is this all being done? I mean, is what you're talking about is some of your work in clinical trials, or is this just sort of something that's being done on a regular
2: basis? Well, most of these things are are still in clinical trials. Okay. Uh, so we're partnering with with companies for instance, that are trying to develop these things. We've got historic expertise in the rare diseases, and we have a lot of patients that come to us from all over the the country and even internationally uh, for therapy. so, Uh, We're quite adept at at, uh, treating these patients, and understanding their problems. So uh, companies tend to come to us to help partner with them in trying to uh, explore how well these therapies are going to work. So obviously not all these things are going to work the way we would hope that they will. But uh, over the next five to 10 years, we'll have a much better sense of uh, what's the optimal way to identify a particular uh, problem and 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 treat that as opposed to potentially other, you know, uh, mechanisms of trying to do the gene therapy.
1: All right. Well, fascinating stuff. Dr. Paul Orchard uh, from the University of Minnesota, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Always interesting to get people from the University of Minnesota. So much research, so much interesting research and and medical efforts being made there to help, you know, with some of these diseases and advances in, in all kinds of diseases. Uh, we're very lucky for those of us who live here in the Twin Cities area to have that resource available for us. Uh, anyway, Esme Murphy with you t- until 9 o'clock. Uh, much more ahead and coming up in the next hour, we're going to talk about, with two experts, one on the Catholic Church, the other on the Methodist Church. The Catholic Church, of course, can deal with troubles with sexual abuse by priests. And the Methodist Church uh, basically deciding this past week that they were not going to allow – Uh, for gay clergy, and they were not going to allow for gay marriages to occur. There is talk now that this may actually result in a spinoff and a division in the Methodist church that could uh, lead the church to become divided into a different denomination, which obviously would be a blow for Methodists. And then in our 8 o'clock hour, we'll chat with Professor David Schultz. Keep it here, folks. News Talk 830-WCCO. When we come back, we'll have your weather. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock, 7.35. Uh, We are talking this half hour first about the Catholic Church and then secondly about the Methodist Church. Uh, The Methodist Church uh, choosing uh, this past week not to – basically they're banning same-sex marriages and banning gay clergy. Uh, That is leading to some analysis that there is going to be a split in the Methodist Church and there will be a new Methodist Church that is creating – created because of people concerned about that but this section we are actually going to talk with professor Charles Reed at the University of St. Thomas he is an expert on the Catholic Church I have talked to him many many times and this is a saga a problem that seems never ending for the Catholic Church and just when you think perhaps it has ended a new ugly tale surfaces of problems that that were ignored and children that were abused, even at the very highest levels of the church. Dr. Charles Reed, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Well, Esme, thank you again for having me. It's, it's uh, wonderful uh, to be talking with you again.
1: Absolutely. Sadly, though, not really great to be talking about this subject again.
3: Oh, this, this subject, it, 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 it's, it's depressing. It, 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 it's saddening. I mean, it, it breaks your heart what, what's happening.
1: You are a professor of law at the University of St. Thomas. You also have followed the Catholic Church extremely closely. closely. What is your take on these latest revelations of sexual abuse at, at the very highest levels in the Vatican?
3: Well, I mean, it, it, it's outrageous. Let's take, uh, let's take first Cardinal McCarrick, Theodore McCarrick of, of Washington, D.C. Uh, he, uh, was, he had sexual relations. With the first uh, apparently it was the first child he ever baptized. He wound up having sexual relations with this kid when he's a teenager, and on into early adulthood, he he had routinely had sexual relations with his seminarians. He he would uh, bring his, his seminary uh, seminary students out to um, you know, uh, uh, some secluded colli- uh, cottage, and, and uh, there'd never be enough beds. Someone would always have to sleep with, with the cardinal that. You know, that led to also, it's abuse abusive it's not only pedophilia it's also abuse of power it's it's both those elements wrapped together that uh, is so disturbing
1: right now, obviously the abuse of, of a teenage boy underage boy that that is pedophilia the abuse of seminarians who are adults there you're talking about the abuse of power yeah and, and that's something that that we've heard about i mean there were allegations which you know Former Archbishop John Neinted, who was the Archbishop here, denied, but but that was amongst the allegations that were leveled against him. I mean, how common is this
3: It, it, it seems to be much more common than, than you think i mean this is this is the Harvey Weinstein situation, isn't it? This is exactly what Harvey Weinstein did if If you wanted to get anywhere with Harvey, you had to play by his rules, and his rules were very dirty, very tawdry. And some of these bishops seem to be doing the same thing. Uh, The most notorious case was a a guy named Father Maciel. Father Maciel uh, was um, uh, the founder of a a conservative uh, religious movement called the Legion of Christ, a big money raiser in the 1990s, a close friend of John Paul II. Uh, He had uh, sexual relations with perhaps 100 of his seminary students and also fathered uh, several children out of, out of marriage, and I believe two or maybe three continents. I mean, it's just, just outrageous.
1: What is the power that somebody, because I, I think even somebody like myself who, who is Catholic doesn't really know the answer to this, what is the power that somebody who was an archbishop would have over a seminarian?
3: It, it, it's a total relationship, uh, because if, if you're a seminary student, Studying to be the, uh, a priest, you uh, make an obligation of obedience, obedience to your bishop. That that obligation is total, it, it, uh, and it's one way. It's, the, the, the bishop doesn't make a promise of, uh, of obedience to you. It, it's, it, it's a one-way relationship, and especially in the seminary, uh, because you, you're studying, you've invested a period of, of years in your studies, and at the end of that, the bishop has uh, a final say. He will either ordain you or reject you. It's all up to the bishop. The bishop uh, is unscrupulous and takes advantage of that. That can lead to horrible things like we've seen with McCarrick.
1: Can, can, does, the, does the bishop also have the power to say, I'm going to get you, put you in line for some plum assignment that could lead to your advancement through the church
3: hierarchy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the plum assignment, if, if, if you're in the seminary, or, 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 or aspiring to great things is to be appointed to something like the North American College. You're sent. It's a kind of finishing school in Rome for for you know the the, the uh, elite seminary students. It's it's a kind of finishing school, and you go there. And it's a it's a school for bishops. It's a school for the the Catholic Church's power elite, and um, so the bishop can also have the power. Also have the power to uh, to reward his favorites I mean, with. That's just one example. There are others.
1: And, and so, if you go to that elite school in in Rome, what 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 is your trajectory in terms it, of your career path?
3: Well, it's like a, a future Supreme a Supreme Court nominee going to Harvard or Yale Law School. It it puts you in the in the power network. It puts you with all the all the connections. It gives you it gives you uh, leverage. It, you know,
1: the one thing you know, looking at the McCarrick... Revelations. The one thing that I, I looked at, I said, well, this was a long time ago that, that this abuse happened. But is that a way – Is that does that make it any better? And I guess part of it was not really all that long ago. But also the fact that it, this wasn't revealed until now is so troubling.
3: Well, I mean uh, the McCarrick stuff was long ago. But then let's look at uh, – the. there was a Scottish cardinal named Keith O'Brien who was removed from office about 2010, I think, or 2012, uh, for much the same reason McCarrick was. He was having sex with his priests and, and, and seminarians. Uh, there have been th- those uh, rumors uh, circling around uh, Archbishop Neinstead's head uh, here in the in the Twin Cities. Um, Archbishop Rembert Weekland in Milwaukee uh, didn't have uh, sexual relations with... Um, a seminary student, but uh, he did have a, a sexual relationship with a uh, uh, with a lover and wound up paying $400,000 out of Archdiocesan funds to keep that secret. That's why he resigned in about 2002. It happens a lot. Is it, in your opinion,
1: and we're chatting with Professor Charles Reed, who is an expert on the Catholic Church, he's a professor at the University of St. Thomas, in your opinion, is it going on today? Is it happening right now?
3: Ah, that's a—I that's a, will say this. The Catholic Church has many more safeguards in place than it did even 10 or 15 years ago. Both uh, when it
1: comes to children and seminarians? When it
3: comes especially to children. Uh, seminarians, um, I'm just—I don't know the seminary situation as well with children, you you have uh, tremendous safeguards put in place I, I i feel perfectly at ease saying that that uh now my daughter went through catholic schools and, and i was perfectly at ease with with that uh but um seminary students that that's always a tougher question what uh all, although i do think these revelations uh, are a wake up call i do think the 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 Catholic Church, the hierarchy, Pope Francis, the hierarchy—they've reached what you call a teachable moment. They—they—they they, they, um, they know they have to change.
1: And is Pope Francis doing it? Because he, I mean,
3: he was close with McCarrick. Well, he—he—he he, he wasn't especially close with McCarrick, but he was close with. Uh, Cardinal Pell in Australia, George. Oh, okay, Powell. Cardinal
1: Pell. That, that, that's that's what I'm thinking. I mean, he was close with him. I mean, is he doing enough?
3: Um, I I hope so. Now, if he's got a, a problem, it is that at the same time he's encountering all of the, these these crises, he wants to decentralize power in the Catholic Church. He he would like to see bishops' conferences, the local church, do more to solve these problems.
1: I mean, do you think that would be effective?
3: Uh, I mean, we've, we've seen efforts by the American church uh, to reform, but I really think in, at the end of the day, you need a, a, a stern, steady, strong voice from Rome just uh, passing laws, enforcing laws, cracking down. On some of this, well, I, I, especially with the seminaries, right. uh, because they, that you, the power abuse there is astonishing potential.
1: Right, and in the way it's set up, it sounds like the way you're describing that the the potential for the power abuse is absolute. Uh, well, anyway, Dr. Charles Reed, thank you so much for joining us, uh, and I certainly hope that you are correct that, that especially the avenues for abuse of, by priests of children in this country especially, uh, have eased somewhat. We certainly appreciate your analysis.
3: Oh, Esme, thank you again. I appreciate joining you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, sir.
3: Okay. Bye-bye.
1: All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about another Christian denomination, the Methodists. Uh, This past week, they banned same-sex marriage and gay clergy. The result may be a a split in the Methodist church uh, that a lot of Methodists are concerned about. So we'll talk with the pastor when we come back on News Talk 830. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Well, this past week, the Methodist Church upheld a ban on same-sex marriage and on gay clergy. Pastor Paul Bodwin is uh, with the United Methodist Church. He is with the church in—his uh, church is in St. Pa- uh, Louis Park, I believe, and he is joining us right now. Did I get that right? You You are in St. Louis Park. Yes, indeed. Okay. Uh, Pastor Baldwin, thank you so much for coming on. I, this has obviously been a, a tough week at the Methodist Church, and it sounds as if a, a lot of people within the Church are not happy about this decision, and there's even talk about some people actually splitting off from the Church. What, What, in your view, actually happened, and what are the consequences?
0: Well, uh, how long? I know that's a lot, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, but uh, essentially, you know, we've been in a 45 plus year struggle around inclusion of LGBTQ uh, people. Um, And we had a special session called of our governing body um, this last week in St. Louis, Missouri, um, to try to figure this out and find a way forward. There were essentially two plans that were really the kind of core things that would be talked about. Um, one would allow for some both, both uh, pastoral and con- and uh, congregational autonomy around this stuff um, so that anybody who's pretty progressive on this could go ahead and do same-sex marriages um, conferences, could ordain LGBTQ people to be pastors and those who were opposed to that would be allowed to continue to not do those things right. um, there was another plan that was before this that actually strengthened the language that's in our governing book, our book of discipline. And that was the one that passed. Um, and so it uh, it, it not only, um, kept going with, I guess what I would call the exclusive language in our book of discipline, but it strengthened it. Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of, uh, lots of people, myself included who, um, uh, we're really struggling this week with the direction of of our denomination. Well, well, um, I think. What, it's also-
1: what are you hearing f- from your congregation? I mean, what are they telling you in St. Louis <laughs> Park?
0: Yeah, we um, we recently passed an inclusion statement um, around uh, LGBTQ people and uh, um, saying that we fully include people of, of all identities um, and. Uh, We did that primarily because it was a conversation we hadn't had yet, and we knew that this was coming, and we wanted to get clarity for ourselves. And having that clarity, um, people in my church are pretty upset, wondering what the future means, Um, but the bottom line is uh, we are still going to be who we are, as are the other churches in our area who are um fully inclusive of LGBTQ people uh we will just continue to be who we are um we are uh and, and there are numerous churches uh, particularly in the twin cities uh united methodist churches that are fully inclusive of LGBTQ people um Eden Prairie united methodist is one of them uh, Hennepin, uh there's there's all kinds of of churches um where where we will continue to um to live this out uh right. regardless
1: Um, Pastor Paul Bowden of the um, United Methodist Church in St. Louis Park, or the Aldersgate United Methodist Church in St. Louis Park, if a gay couple came to you this evening and said, you know, Pastor, we'd like to get married, which of course is legal here in in Minnesota, what would you say?
0: I would say, uh, let's talk. Let's start meeting together to talk about your relationship and your life, and let's start making the plans.
1: So, you, um, you, that, which is basically a yes. I mean, that doesn't sound like if, if there was a, you know, a heterosexual couple that came to you and tonight and said, uh, Pastor, we want to get married. Would you say the same thing to them? It, yes, yeah, They okay.
0: would treat it exactly the same way. I but would deal with it, uh, doesn't
1: exactly the doesn't way. that mean, Pastor, that you would be in, in out of line with, with the official doctrine of the United Methodist Church?
0: Yes, indeed, it does. Um, Part of our inclusion statement in our church—well, uh, part of it actually says that the church um, endorses me doing such things. It also says that it endorses same-sex marriages happening in our building. Um, and it also calls out the language that's already in our governing document. Um, and This, we this is cite... your
1: local, your local church is my, in St. Louis Park.
0: This is my local church's inclusion statement. Says that uh, we reject those, that exclusive language, and we believe that rejecting that language is a way that we fulfill our baptismal vows. One of which says that we will resist oppression in whatever forms it presents itself.
1: And pastor, so, if I can ask you, was there was there a lot of dissent it, within your congregation? I mean, was it a close vote, or was it how, how do these things work?
0: Um, we went through about a nine-month-to-one-year process of congregational conversations and exploration around this, and um, we're one of the kind of late adopters <laughs> to this official inclusion in our uh, district. Um, and last August, we passed this inclusion statement by a margin of 96%.
1: Well, that's pretty decisive, yes. <laughs> to, to, to say the least. Uh, so, what I mean, let's say that you did perform a, a marriage of, of a gay couple, which again is is completely within the law in Minnesota, and clearly yeah. you feel it's within God's law. Yep. What uh, what do you think would happen? I mean, it's will the hierarchy of the church come down and you know say, Pastor, you could no longer be a path, pastor in our church? I mean, what is the discipline?
0: Um, that's a great question. Um, we, uh, One of the things I love about the United Methodist system is that there's a lot of power given to a lot of people, including the laity. Technically, I, my understanding, and before you, you sort of passively referred to me as an expert, which is not at all what I am, <laughs> but I want to be clear about that. But uh, my understanding is that really anybody could file charges on me and I could potentially go through a church trial and have my credentials revoked. Um, the United Methodist Church in Minnesota has kind of, in some ways, already been operating on this other plan that didn't pass that allows for some autonomy. So I don't think that would happen, but it could. Um, it very well could, because I would be in violation of, of our Book of Discipline.
1: Right. Uh, and it sounds like the organization of the church is sort of inherently decentralized, but it sounds like you have the – if the vote was 96 percent in favor yeah. of this, it sounds like your congreg- congregation is, is very much in lockstep with where you are and, and where they are as a group.
0: Yes. Um, yeah, and uh, and I'm grateful for that. Um that That didn't happen you know by some kind of unilateral move by me or anything. Um, we really had some I think very authentic conversations around this stuff and 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 to be fair our our system um is such that our bishop and the bishop's cabinet appoint pastors to churches and they work really hard to find good fits and they thought this one was a good fit and and we've seen over and over that that it is a good fit, and this is one of the fruits of that um of, of a I think an appointment that worked out well.
1: All right. And uh obviously this will be the first Sunday since yeah. the vote. <laughs> yeah. Is will there be uh I mean I, I don't I don't want to like leak your sermon or anything like that, but, but are are you going to be addressing it tomorrow?
0: Um yes, absolutely. I, I quite honestly my personal opinion is that I think it'd be irresponsible not to address it. Sure. Um, but we're, it's definitely not going to be the whole focus. Um, one of the things I believe in terms of the local church right now, any local United Methodist church is the powers in the local church. And every church needs to just continue to step into who they are and be, they are, and be who they are. Um, like it, I was listening in your six o'clock hour, there are homeless people. That, that need to be sheltered. And the church has a responsibility in that. We have systems of power that we need to start to, of oppressive power, that we need to be working on dismantling. I mean, we have work to do as congregations, and so let's do it. <laughs> let's just continue to do our work. So mm-hmm. we will address it, but part of addressing it will be, let's just continue to be who we know who we are.
1: Well, Pastor Paul Bodwin, thank you so much for your time, and I'm sure those uh, who will be attending church tomorrow will be looking forward to your sermon.
0: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the time.
1: All right. Keep it here. News Talk 830.